0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the second episode of Paleo Party Season 2, sponsored by the Paleontological Society. As always, I am joined by the wonderful Emma and Chris, and by all of you here in the chat on Twitch, where you can fire us questions as we chit-chat away. But as per usual, uh, we have a very special guest this evening. They are a curator at the Natural History Museum in London. They are the keeper of fossil benthic mollusks and proud pup parent, it's Dr. Katie Collins, everyone. You're
1: welcome. Um, We're asking all of our guests to attempt to explain what they do using the Opcore 5 text editor, which only allows you to use the 1,000 most commonly used words in the English language. This is especially tricky seeing as neither paleontology nor fossil appear amongst these words. It's okay, take it away.
2: (laughs) So, I study soft animals with two hard outer body walls that live in the ground under the water. Hard outside soft body animals have been around for a very long time and we find lots of them dead in rocks. So we can see how they've looked from the very early times to today. I look at how big they are and how round they are through time. Some groups of animals are very big and some are very small, even though they might live in the same places and look almost the same. So my job is to ask why that is, and this helps us to understand how life came to be so different and interesting, and what it might look like tomorrow and the days after.
3: That's uh, excellent. That's, excellent. That is excellent. Like <laughs>
0: we're all clapping, but we don't want to like clap loudly, so it's all like silent little silent hand claps.
3: <laughs> that was superb. That was excellent. Very, yeah. That was succinct. It's yeah. very
2: distressing that neither like uh, shape or you know, there's there's a bunch of words that just aren't aren't in the top 1000 most common, but shape really threw me. I was like, how do I? <laughs> <shape?">
3: <laughs> things are round, things are not round. There you go, that's pretty much all shapes covered.
2: I mean, it's the best for the lips is largely what I study. to be honest with you, so... <laughs>
3: Um, Just a reminder for you folks at home, um, we are live on Twitch, as I'm sure you all know, so please fire in your questions for Katie. You can ask anything, Um, anything about mollusks, anything about museums, anything about curating things and taxonomy, or just anything. Um, So yeah, feel free to either type in the chat or message us on Twitter, which is our handle of Paleo Party, spelt with two A's in the UK spelling. Um, but yeah, Katie, obviously you did an expert job in uh, in describing us, your research using the Upgo 5. Um, but anything you want to elaborate on now that you have more than the yeah, top now you can say, words of the English language? now you can language. say
2: shapes. <laughs> yeah. Ooh,
1: like,
2: yeah. Um, I mean, I guess I, I feel like the Upgo 5 kind of captured the basics of it. But I mean, it's essentially, it's, it's shape analysis. It's more for metrics. And I tend to work on... So I don't, like my amateurish attempt at describing a bivalve as a, a soft animal with two hard outer body walls is kind of, I mean, I, yeah, mostly I work on bivalves and I look at their shape through time and I look at um, their taxonomy and like describing them and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and I sometimes dabble in snails and I, with snails, it's, t- I tend to be very interested in the geometry of their shells, so i tend to work mostly on quantifying the spiral itself like the nature mm-hmm. of how you measure a spiral and how you compare spirals to each other is kind of my my weird little passion with snails <laughs>
1: So, utterly
2: adorable. <laughs> I, so I was
0: going to say, we've already had, we've already had, a, we've already had someone in the chat saying, which is the best b- bivalve and why? Um, so I think maybe let's step back a little bit from that. And from our viewer for our listeners and viewers that don't know, could you give us a little bit of an explanation of what a bivalve is? And can you talk a little bit about their evolutionary past and, and, and why should we care about bivalves?
2: Oh, I could talk about the. How long have you got? You've got
0: one hour. <laughs> um, I'll just mute myself go. and we'll go get a cup of coffee and
2: you, yeah. you crack on. You guys could go. <laughs> okay, right, we'll see you later. <laughs> so, okay, so a bivalve is, in, in technicality, bivalve is one of the classes of mollusks. So, mollusks are soft bodied animals. They're a phylum of animals and they include things like octopus and squid that you might be familiar with. Uh, For terms
0: so, and conditions, I have to interrupt you and say they are the best mollusks, But we'll we we'll continue.
2: Sorry, which <laughs> ones are the best
0: mollusks? <laughs>
3: oh no! <laughs> um, controversy already. We deep. can have We're this only time time
2: five time. minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> so bivalves are one of the classes of mollusk, um, and they are the class that includes oysters and clams and scallops and mussels um, and and shipworms and things like that. Uh, they have been around about 520 million years, so the earliest one is, is this little weeny guy called Fordilla, uh, which is found in some sort of upstate New York and various places in the United States. Very, very wee, very, very small, about five millimeters across. Um, and from there, they kind of they poodled along through the Cambrian, which is yeah about 500 million years ago, and then uh, in a later time period, more like um, sort of in the sort of 400 million years ago kind of range, they kind of had a bit of an explosion of of different forms. And the the really neat thing is that all of the big divisions in the bivalvia that we see today between um, the very primitive, the the, um, protobranchs, which are razor muscles, which some people eat. So people might be familiar with razor muscles, which are chemosymbiotic. They're kind of the oldest of the living groups. But them and the group that includes mussels, scallops, and oysters, the teryomorphs, and the groups that include the freshwater mussels, the group that includes my favorite little group, the archiheterodonts, which most people are not particularly familiar with, sadly, but those group, that group. And then the big group uh, at the top of the tree, which is split into two, uh, the anomala desmata, which is where all the very weird things live, and we can talk about them another time. And then the imparadentia, which is where all the things you're probably more familiar with or the clams the sort of the bittersweet uh like the sorry no bittersweet are so, um the Samaritans, don't worry uh <laughs> like the mercenaria type things um cherry stones that's what they call them in the states cherry stones that's what i was thinking of um and um heart cockles and that kind of thing they all live um but all of the groups all of these groups of bivalves have at least one representative all the way back down in the Ordovician, so four hundred-ish million years ago. Uh, so they've got really just millions and millions of years of evolution, and their fossil record is almost second to none because, in terms of like things that are big enough to pick out of the rock with your fingers, because they live almost everywhere where rock is deposited, except for like ter- very terrestrial uh, areas. And there's just there's so many of them if if you have a fossiliferous deposit and it was deposited anywhere near water the odds that there are bivalves in it are quite high um and so they i think they're really cool because they give you a really neat way to study uh i hate to use the phrase tempo and mode but you know what i mean like how does evolution proceed what are the patterns of it what is the timing how does a lineage reacts to various environmental factors, you, the data set that bivalves give us kind of allows us to ask questions about biodiversity through time. And on top of that, because they grow in an accretionary way. So they start out very small and instead of like remodeling their skeleton as they grow, what they do is they just add a layer, and they add a layer, and they add a layer, and they add a layer. And so you can get the story of the lifetime of one bivalve from its shell as well as taking all of the bivalves together through a stack of rock and getting the story of the lineage through time. And I just think that's amazing. As a true
1: paleontologist, I'm
0: so jealous of your data sets. <laughs> 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 so I didn't, I didn't realize that razor clams, like go. So I thought that I would, oh, I just imagined that they were quite derived, but they go all the way back to thing.
2: The genus Acorax is Ordovician to recent. Wow, that, that's insane. That is crazy. They're <laughs> amazing. I love them. They're so cool. So, but again, the genus um, uh, Modiolus, the horse muscle, Ordovician division to recent. Mm. Like I've got, I could show you photos. I've got Carboniferous uh, Modiolus, Jurassic Modiolus, Miocene Modiolus, recent Modiolus, and you would struggle to tell them apart. That's,
0: That's
1: crazy,
2: great.
1: Yeah. Like, a walk on the beach is gonna make so yeah. like be so much more now. Just thinking of how old these animals are.
2: I used to I used to teach on a field course that was basically a cliff section on a beach, and the rocks were sort of plio Pleistocene, so three million years and a little bit younger. And you could walk through the section had like a regional dip of about three degrees, so all of the rocks were very shallowly dipping, and you could walk through the last five million years through a 10 kilometer walk down the beach. And you could pick up shells in the in the clip and then go down to the beach and find the living, same species oh, wow. in some cases or congeners. So things, different species in the same genus. And it was great. We would walk the students out 10 Ks down the beach and they would do their exercise on, the, and they would measure all of the layers of the rock and they'd collect their fossils. And we'd take them back to uni and we'd, we'd work on them for the next few months. But on the way back, as well as like going for a swim and playing some beach cricket and doing all of that stuff on the ten-kilometer hike home with a pack full of rocks, we'd go and look at the shells on the beach and see how they match the shells from just for fun just see how they match the shells from the cliffs. You can do
3: that with one.
0: That's wild. Very
3: That's okay. wild.
0: <laughs> so, what was what was happening? Um, sort of, uh, what do we know about this group uh, pre? shell um what were they like before this the shell became a thing or, or is, is that even not known is this a mystery
3: the ham really... the
2: ham no not the ham we don't discuss the ham what
3: <laughs> what is the ham,
2: oh, hypothetical the, ham. Oh, the
3: hypothetical
0: ancestral mollusk i got it
2: <laughs> okay so this is like an area of active research and i'm definitely not the researcher you want for this um I could give you some names of people you, you should be interviewing the origins of mollusks, but uh, this is a very active area of research. Um, the ham probably never existed. Just So, so to be, to be oh. very clear, the, the ham or the hypothetical ancestral mollusk is this thing you see in textbooks where in order to try and come up with a narrative of mollusk evolution, people invented this weird limpety thing that just combined all of what they were sh- pretty sure were the basal states of characters in Mollusca. So the neat thing about the phylum Mollusca is that there are no characters that are found in every single representative of the phylum. In fact, there are very mm-hmm. few characters, really, that you find between most of the classes. So gastropods, cephalopods, bivalves, rostraconchs, or, like, aplacophora. poly... Well, okay, aplacophora is split up now. It's, like, cordophoviata and oh, I'm going to get in trouble for the <laughs> neomenia Uh And so all of the, but if you put them all together, like every class has a bunch of stuff in common with say two other classes, but not a third one, mm. right? So just trying to figure out what, which classes are most closely related to each other through the phylum is still like, people are still spilling ink and pulling beards and waving fists at conferences about it, like because they've got such a long evolutionary history. Like you try and do it with genetics and mm. I don't, I don't really understand genetics. I don't deal in squishy bits very much, but I'm told it's very difficult. If something has a really long evolutionary history and lots of changes, then it can be quite difficult to figure out the order of relationships. Um, bivalves may have, okay. So and actually I read a paper about this just the other day. So for, bivalves may have come from a sort of pseudo bivalve played called the rostrakonk which are, i love rostrakonks they're super cool um but they essentially they were like a they were like a taco <laughs> like imagine a taco shell <laughs> so imagine a limpet you know a limpet mm. imagine it just got like it was a shield shape and it just kind of went like, kept going. like this until it became like a taco and it sat in the sediment and so the one theory is that the earliest group of rostrakonks gave rise, like they budded off bivalves and then and continued as rostrakonks alongside their daughter played bivalvia and then budded off another group called the tusk shells or scaphopods. And there's, there's, there's debate about whether or not that is true, but that was a very plausible hypothesis for a while. But another researcher, I think just this year, maybe... Uh, certainly I read the paper this year, uh, has disputed that and thinks that one of the earliest bivalves that we have, so this Fordilla is pretty much undeniably a bivalve, and then there's a couple of other things. One of them, which is very dear to my heart because it's from where I grew up in New Zealand, it's from, it's from that area of the, of the world, Turangia, is putatively the most bivalved rostraconch instead of being a bivalve which argues that the bivalve form evolved twice and Ooh. like the, the rostroconchoid bivalves died off or rather the bivalvoid rostraconchs died off. Anyway, I don't know how I feel about that theory because it's not, I mean, it requires an awful lot of reversals of character states for it to work, but I don't know, it could be. Anyway, basically, long story short, ongoing mystery. Right. <laughs> Coming
0: up, we don't yeah. know. Yeah, I was gonna say we don't know. <laughs> I just, I, I think calling someone a ham might be my new favorite insult, though. <laughs> like, and then not explaining to them what it is. And I, I feel as well like if you went to like a Mollusky conference and someone gave a talk on like the ham and you didn't like it, you could just like you know, get get a slice of ham, just like throw it at them as a mark of disgust.
2: You would you would not go to a Mollusky conference and talk about the ham <laughs> exported from the premises. No, <laughs> okay, I don't think that's this a one's serious.
0: Good. That's a that's a paleo party exclusive. That, that's a big faux pas. Don't talk about the ham. No, no more, no more ham. Don't even
2: speak of it. No,
0: I might, I might, we might have to get some paleo party merch which just says "Do not talk of the ham."
2: <laughs> oh, I love it. I'd wear that T-shirt.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Talking of paleo party merch that needs to happen. Oh. On uh, an episode last season, we had the, the we what were doing it was the it was coming up with band paleo band names, and uh, I think m- mine was listed as my beloved bivalves because I I have a secret history with bivalves. Um, I I studied them for my PhD. So this is going to be one of my questions to you, Katie. Oh, what is your most beloved bivalve? I know this is this has come up in the chat as well. Yeah, someone's asked that in the chat. So there you my go. My most
2: beloved bivalve is. I mean, I, this is not really a secret. So for my PhD, I studied a genus of bivalve called Spicetella. which uh... is a bivalve endemic to New Zealand. And they had the, the teeniest little radiation in the Oligocene. So about 25, 30 million years ago. Teeny, teeny, tiny radiation of, of like five species. Um, <laughs> and then, That's all the members then, of the band. As a
0: guitarist, <laughs> as a bassist, as a drummer, as a singer, and as probably a dancer, done.
2: Perfect. Anyway, so that's my favorite bivalve is this little thing called Spicetella, which, I mean, they're neat, right? So the, the fun thing was that they, in all characters, taxonomically, like if you're trying to come up with categorical ways to differentiate the species, you basically can't. All of the differences are in shape. Uh, and various other characteristics of the shell, like shell thickness and inflation. Um, And this gets back to the thing where you, you know what each individual looked like as a baby, and then all of the stages through its growth. So I was able to use oxygen isotope analysis to work out how many years each individual lived, and then get a growth rate out of that. And then I could compare all of their size and shape at age, and which, so the study of changes in developmental timing uh, leading to evolutionary changes, heterochrony. So I was able to look at heterochrony in these bivalves. Um, and that was really fun, although I'm never doing oxygen isotope analysis again. <laughs>
3: Why not? It,
2: it takes stressful? so long and I'm very bad at chemistry. I had to sit in a small airless windowless room with a micro mill, which is like the unholy satanic offspring of a microscope and a dental drill for months, just squirting argon at this sample every time I like I drilled a little bit of shell, put it into a little tip tubey thingy, and then you had to like blow argon at it because you couldn't just use compressed air because somehow that would contaminate the ice. I don't understand. But anyway, it was slowly filling up this unventilated room with an inert gas. So, like, you had to be quite careful how long you spent in the micromill room before you basically murdered yourself through lack of oxygen. And it just, I'd rather sit down and describe things, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) The results are the oxygen isotopes. So, yay, oxygen isotopes. Thank you.
0: Oh, dear. I like, we've had uh, one comment in the chat which I quite liked from Sherry D 2021, which was ham and tacos, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the food <laughs> episode. It's, yeah, this is literally, I didn't realise it was going to be a food episode. Oh dear, so, dear.
1: Before we move too far on, when you mentioned paper, it reminded me of my favourite titled paper ever, it's actually one of yours. And it's 2017 in Paleobiology. I love that title so much. But you've got to tell us what the title is. I have it here in front of me, actually, because I wanted to get it right. It's, does my posterior look big in this? The effect of photographic distortion on morphometric analysis. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. It's the best.
0: Now, now, like, if we were to make merch, I'm just saying, could we put that on the t-shirt? <laughs> I think that would sell. <laughs> you, could, you could use that one. That We could have, like, <laughs> does my posterior look big in this on the front and then a tiny little bivalve on the back like just sat there just chilling right up, just above the bottom
2: yeah I just I had to give that paper well me and my co-author obviously uh, had to give the paper a good title because honest to god it's the most tedious paper you'll ever read <laughs> it, it, all it is is so camera lenses are round and unless you have a lot of money your camera lens distorts the image that you take with it right and you can test that just by taking a picture of a piece of, of graph paper towards the edge of the image, the lines are no longer straight. They bow out in different ways. And that is fine. Like that's a known property of cameras. But if you're very interested in the exact positions of small points in and differences in of under a millimeter, it starts to screw you up. So we did this analysis where we did the same 30 bivalves. We took a bunch of sets of photos of them in, with different camera settings. Um, and if you use, uh, like a linear discriminant analysis, so an an analysis where you tell the computer what groups you want and ask it to find the most difference it can between them. If you have different camera settings, you can have the same bivalve be pulled so far apart in your analysis that it will come up as two different groups. Oh, wow. That's
3: big. So crazy. In
0: fairness, I think everyone else's camera lenses have been getting round, rounder as well. Because when people take photos of me after COVID, I'm looking rounder and rounder. So it I must mean, be the, it must be the camera lenses.
2: Well, it's funny you should say that. So the problem is worse on more expensive cameras because more. That's expensive- what
0: I've been saying for
2: such a long what? time. Most expensive SLRs have um, full-frame sensors. So the most distorted part of the picture is retained in a more expensive camera. Whereas if you have a a cheap SLR and it's a cropped frame sensor, it's cutting off all the offending bits of the photo. So actually, as your camera technology has got better, it probably, if your face is filling the whole of the frame, it will be distorting it more at the edges and you will look rounder. That's, That's crazy. crazy. That's true. I will I tell will my GP
0: you. this exact thing.
2: <laughs> it's all in the camera. <laughs> yeah.
1: This is another example of where paleontology goes, like, <laughs> image ref- what do you? I, I'm sure there's a fancy term on all of this, but imaging and camera stuff, like, yeah, it wasn't. it's far from the fossils and the dirt that I was kind of expect. I was so all at this.
2: <laughs> I know. I one of so that my last job before this job I essentially spent 3 years micro ct scanning things which meant that one of the weird skills that I have now is the ability to pick up any common household household plastic object and estimate how opaque to ct it is like Then file this under skills you didn't know you would ever need. Imagine that that this is like one of
0: those, you know, those like party games. It's like, what superhero power would you like? (laughs) Well, let me tell you. I already have one. Um, So I have a a quick question. It's not a question from the chat. It's actually just a personal question that I've always been interested in. And I've never thought to look it up. And I think now is a good time. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about some of the living bivalves and stuff. And you talked a little bit about muscles. Muscles like cling onto the rock crazy with these little filaments. A, what are those filaments? And B, are they in the fossil record? Because they're like pretty hardcore.
2: Um, Those filaments are called byssus. Okay. <laughs> they're protein. Um, lots of bivalves have byssus as juveniles, particularly. They sort of use it as a sand anchor and then they sort of grow out of it. Um, some of them. It's just re- a phase. Yeah, it's just. Oh, it's just not a it. It's just a phase. It's just a phase. <laughs> just a phase. <laughs> Some of them retain it, so it's not a phase. Um, and particularly for things like many muscles, will um, will hold themselves down with, with bissel threads. Uh, and there's a related group called the um, pinidae or pinna, uh, which back home we would call a horse muscle, but which is not referred to as a horse muscle in the Mediterranean. But pinna nobilis produces such a prodigious amount of bissus that people used to collect it. And I think still do collect it and weave it into very fine cloth called sea silk, which is wonderful. Um, as to whether or not it preserves in the fossil record, I have not, I think I've seen images of it, of like impressions of it. Okay. Very rarely. Normally you tell if a bivalve was bisate as an adult because essentially, so the bissus is produced by the squishy inside of the bivalve and it has to interact with things outside of the bivalve. So there's usually at least some modification of the shell for it to emerge from the shell. Uh-huh. In place. So you see in, uh, in many scallops, you will see their little oracles, their ears, the little triangle bits. So if you imagine the scallop is like a teardrop shape with two little triangles coming out from the pointy end of the teardrop, one of them is sometimes bigger than the others. And if you look very closely, it has like a little notch and the join where it t- touches the main disc is deeper than on the other side, and that's uh that's its bissel that's its bissal notch. No way. But you mostly only see that on um right valves. You only see that on the anterior of the right valve. So scallops, left valves and right valves are quite different um in some species and tend to only get that bissel notch on the right valve.
0: Well hey, is good, a good day. day yeah that's it. I've <sighs> absolutely smashed it. Yeah. I mean that's it, stream over. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> all my questions are answered. Yeah all the questions done. Yeah.
1: As you were chatting, I was just thinking that you're in a really unique position where you can actually taste your study species, because these are eaten like all over the world. Do you have a favorite tasting mollusk?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, I like, um, this is, this is so fun. I like pectin nova (laughs) zelandiae, which is a scallop, it's a large scallop that you find uh, that's fished commercially in New Zealand, and they have, they have a big adductor muscle about this big like the size of uh, of a decent sized coin and they are very tender and you cook them up and they're very nice. I also like mussels. Um, again, my preference would be perna, which is the, the green-lipped mussel that is, is fished back home, is endemic to New Zealand perna canaliculus, they're just because they're, they're bigger than the mytilids. So Mytilus edulis is usually the one that's eaten around here and they're, they're littler. Mm. Um, yeah, I not don't. A... <laughs> I, I just, I haven't,
0: I have an unwritten rule that I try not to learn the Latin names of the things I eat, because it kind of creeps <laughs> me out. I just like, I just love the idea that you just know all the Latin names of everything, and you're just like, right, all <laughs> the mollusks, anyway.
1: We all have that one friend who's like really into wines and knows their alcohol or beers really well, but you've taken that to a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I think my parents have a rule to just not take me to
2: seafood restaurants.
0: <laughs> Why do you try? Do you try to order in like Latin, by Latin name?
2: But it's not. My stepdad orders in Italian, which is really embarrassing when we're in New Zealand. When the waiters don't, even in Italian restaurants, don't speak Italian. I mean, his Italian is excellent. If we was in Italy, it would work beautifully. But <laughs> you can't guarantee that a waiter in New Zealand is going to be able to speak Italian. But anyway, no, I don't. I don't order in Latin. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, speaking of Latin and favorites, mm. I'm gonna go for it. Do you have a favorite genus and species name, a binomial? Oh, a favorite binomial. Yeah, that's a good question. As a taxonomist, I feel like I feel like I huh? should. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's a lot. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> um. So there's a telenid bivalve. In New Zealand, this is a very, this story is completely apocryphal, okay, this is like a, a urban legend of New Zealand malacologists, I cannot confirm nor deny that this is the origin of the name, but there is a little tellin that lives in New Zealand and the name of it is elliptotelina urinatoria, and I am told that the specific epithet urinatoria is because it was discovered from a dredge sample on a research vessel. And what happened was some delightful malacologist in days of yore pulled up the dredge sample and then needed to answer a call of nature and for some reason decided that the pile of unsorted mollusks on the deck was the correct <laughs> hand to mark in this way and the thing the new species washed out of the dredge sample on a rivulet of (laughs) urine so there's that (laughs) that's a good one um that's probably my favourite. <laughs> that is excellent. Isn't that
0: isn't great it, choice? Isn't the film Demolition Man, which is set in the future where they, they go to the toilet and there's no toilet paper and he's like, why is there no toilet paper? Why are there three shells? And no one ever explains to him what the use of the three shells is for. And that is a running joke throughout the entire film that there are just three shells to use at the end of your toilet. And he's just like, what are the shells <laughs> for? I feel, like, I feel like this is where this is going.
2: That's amazing. I have not seen this film. Really. I, wouldn't,
0: I wouldn't recommend <laughs> it, but there is a shell joke in there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, a chat a question um do you think rudists were tasty probably not <laughs> um
2: i mean okay so we could do a bit of the phylogenetic bracketing here right rudists are yes i am here um of some kind they're probably they're probably descended from like Megalodon. So sorry, shark fans. This is like a pet peeve of mine. So, Kate, Katie,
0: I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but this is all. This has already happened in the chat. So someone, someone in the chat quite early on said, um "Hold on, let me just find it very quickly while I'm quickly looking." Someone said, this "What's what's, the what's my favorite? Ever? Your favorite invert?" And someone said megalodon the true one of course and then someone else replied saying there's a bivalve called megalodon and then i replied saying isn't that a shark and then a sharky bivalve and then the the chat has spiraled so basically i think you're preaching to the choir here
2: i'm so glad this is clearly the best audience anyone has ever had <laughs> um anyway, the real megalodon the real megalodon uh not some sharky pretender was probably the ancestral group for the rudists um do if if we have this wonderful audience do i need to explain the rudista or yeah
0: i i would like to know what a rudist is
2: okay so rudists are great quite frankly um they are very large bivalves and when i say they are very large bivalves they're not, the mo- they're not the biggest bivalve there has ever been. The biggest bivalves are inoceramids, and I have to shout out to my advisor there. My, my beloved advisor, James Crampton, works on inoceramids, which are very big, and they get up to about two and a half, three meters. Big, big boys, big, big. Rudists are also very big, but in a different way, So, and they're very variable. Basically, they really took this idea of being inequivalve, so having two, two shells, different shapes, two extremes, Some of them, and sort of the most famous ones, I think, are just big ice cream cones. And when I say big ice cream cones, I mean like half a meter tall, like this kind of diameter, and solid, right? Because the amount of shell, the amount of shell versus the amount of animal, the the amount of animal would have been a decent-sized burger patty, right? And the shell is a half a meter thick, just this ice cream cone with like a lid, and most bivalves open like a hinge right rudists had this amazing system with like a pop top lid where they squeezed they squeeze their muscles and the top lid went up like magical um some other rudists look like um like like croissants like the two curved horn shaped yes. things that just have meat in the middle someone so in the chat, in the crisp- in the chat has already
0: asked are the croissant shaped rudists would they be good for breakfast
2: well, no, because there's just like a slimy lump of very little bivalve inside. Those co- those big horns weren't hollow; they're solid. They're just—I mean, they're just no. I—I I mean, the the burger patty part, the squishy mollusk part might have been quite tasty because thinking about where they sit in the sort of hypothetically, because we don't know, right? But where we think they sit in the in the tree. They're kind of sandwiched between uh, gooey ducks. You guys know gooey ducks? Um, yeah, so um, panapia. Uh, so they're sandwiched in between those somewhere and then things like mercenaria, so your, um, your cherry stones and quahogs and that that kind of group. Admittedly, though, in between those two families of there are also a whole bunch of things people don't bother to eat. Um, they're probably edible, but the the faff of getting them out of their finding them for a start and then getting them out of their shells and then you've only got like this much meat it's kind of don't bother with that I think rudists may have been tasty but that the effort of getting them out of their shells you'd need a crowbar and I just don't I mean go and find a scallop it's easier
3: no food <laughs> needs a crowbar that's my professional it's step opinion,
2: too far yeah
0: <laughs> So um, the, so we have a little um, unofficial tradition here on Paleo Party, which is that if someone makes an outstanding contribution in the chat, we award them a Paleo Party point. And I took the liberty this year. No one has seen this yet because no one was awarded a Paleo Party point last episode. I took the liberty of making some Paleo Party gifts specifically for people who received a Paleo Party point. Unfortunately, because you're not on the stream, you won't be able to see it. So you just have to trust me when I say that they are spectacularly rubbish. But Sherry D, 2021, has going to receive season two's first paleo party point for the best pun of tonight, which is, Ooh. are you saying that these are a ham burger patty? <laughs> hey. So for you,
2: oh. <laughs> a random
0: paleo party gif. <sighs> Please enjoy.
1: <laughs>
2: Great work. Oh, dear, dear. <laughs>
1: I'm loving the chat right now. They're going from ev- everything from talking about rudis building amazing reefs to hamburger patty. So <laughs> <It's like laughs> everything.
0: Oh dear.
1: I, I did. Cut, I, I will admit. Oh, I did
0: Sherry's outdone it. herself. She says. She says. I love it when a clam comes together. Get out. Oh! Get out. Oh,
1: oh, I'm I tempted can't... to
0: rescind your paleo party point, but I won't because <laughs> I'm, I'm a generous god.
1: <laughs> anyway. Uh, so somebody like me and the child who was like, thinking of ice cream cones uh, and bivalves, like, I-, I will admit that I haven't had dessert after dinner. Just, I was genuinely thinking of a uh ice cream cone the whole way through that. <laughs> I mean, when you see one, it's just, it's so striking and you're
2: just like, there's no other way to describe the form except ice cream cone. But then imagine they, these one the ice cream cone ones build reefs. Huge reefs kilometers long of ice cream cones. Yeah, that they are pretty spectacular, nice. aren't they? They're so cool. They're super, super cool.
0: So I th- I think as we as we move into the latter half of our podcast today, um we've we've had quite a lot of questions about curating. Um and you are the first curator uh, on on the podcast. Um so there's has been some really, really great questions. Um Synapsid fan asks what part of invertebrate curation has been most surprising to you or what was uh, not expected when you first started?
2: Um, I mean, I started curating during my, so to, cause I didn't have a funded PhD. I, I worked during my PhD as a curator um, and I kind of started from scratch. Like they, they the previous curator had left the collection in, um, and hadn't, maybe hadn't parted on the best of terms with the institution and so the, there was no handover and frankly it was not in a great state and so I sort of had to back form catalogs by find, pulling together specimens or writing down all of their numbers and getting them ID'd and going okay so this number must mean this etc uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I think the thing that yeah I think the thing that maybe surprised me when I first started was literally the fact that the state of records in many collections is not what you would hope and i mean there's a logical reason for that right is almost every single big collection started from some dude who just collected stuff and they never wrote any damn thing down and so as you get closer to modern day the records get better and better and better and there's things we can do to improve the records of the older things but i think probably that was the biggest surprise to start with was this oh they're oh, we don't, some things we don't know where they came from. They've been in this collection longer than anyone is alive. So, yeah. Um, what was the other part of the question? Sorry, I'd lost my train of thought there. I think
0: that was it. I think that was, what was the most surprising thing, I guess, uh, when you yeah. started? What did you not expect?
2: Um, I guess the other thing that, that I don't, I mean, so when I started it, NHM, the first thing I did was I literally just went through and opened every single drawer and there's a lot of drawers. Uh, And I found all kinds of things in some of those drawers. Uh, Probably my favorite ones are sometimes the let. there are occasionally bits of documentation that are kept with the specimens for various reasons, usually because they should be consulted with the specimens and and there's no problem keeping them together like the, the curation risk is assessed. And two of my favorite things are they're both letters one of them is written on like athenaeum club notepaper from 1887 it's from like lord someone or other lord you know who is interested in shells and it's almost unreadable because it's like this very old copper plate and i I could not tell you largely what it said except it was quite effusive in places like but the other one was written much more recently and it was from a guy who had clearly been, he was like a a geologist or a prospector or something, and he'd found some, some shells. But the only resource he had to identify them was basically a child's book of fossils from the next country over from where he was prospecting for a company. And he'd written this long letter explaining his attempts to ID these things and that he was sending them back with his wife who'd come to visit him on site, et cetera, et cetera. And the last part of the letter was this little postscript, which was, "P.S. I have a diploma in chemistry, ten O levels, am in Mensa, and am presently drunk." <laughs>
3: <laughs> what? <laughs> wow!
2: I, I like. I opened this drawer looking for specimens of something to answer an inquiry, and just got engrossed in this guy's letter and to the get to the end of it and have him confess he was drunk while writing <laughs> it was just amazing.
0: (laughs) I love the idea of some Victorian gentleman in the Athenaeum club writing a letter saying like, Dear Natural History Museum, I have prized open this animal with a crowbar and I tell you it tastes disgusting.
2: They probably would have. They had like clubs for eating all kinds of things at that time. I just, I mean, Rudus were extinct by that point, so they couldn't have done it. But by God, if they could have, undoubtedly they would
3: have. (laughs) I think this... Museums, I I started working in the NHM fairly recently. And I think I agree and 100% agree with you, Katie. The weirdest thing is that institutional memory of the museum. Like the Natural History Museum has been running for like 200 years and you'll, you'll open drawers and be like, there's stuff in here that hasn't been looked at for like 100 years and no one knows where it's come from. There's one tiny scrappy bit of paper that's like, might be this, question mark. And that's it. And you've got this... And, that, and that's, that's all the pieces of the puzzle that you're given to kind of untangle things. And it's, uh, it's simultaneously fascinating and infuriating. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it, was, it was definitely the biggest, biggest, biggest surprise for me when I was starting. It's just like how every little scrap of information going back is so important because you know, as you go further back, just like in the geological records, you have less information.
2: Absolutely it's yeah the the analogy is almost completely perfect between museum collections and geological records oh, that's my
1: dog um, i'm so glad she made an appearance i was so excited <laughs> she, she's like welcome to bark if she needs to uh
2: i might just let her out actually
1: <laughs> um, oh. I was going to add a story of my own actually. I have also done a stint at the NHM and one of the weirdest things that i found that actually housed some fossils were a series of mismatched matchstick boxes and they were so old I didn't even recognize any of the brands or anything like that but they were within the box there was tissue paper around these tiny tiny little bones and they were all like neatly packaged together but no information other than the matchstick the company on them and even that wasn't very useful but um, what was the weirdest thing that either Chris or Katie what have you come across a h- is housed in that's been really strange
2: um there's we've got one drawer that's full of like newspapers from the very early 1900s I think from Panama and all of the shells are in little wooden cigar boxes and it's like pirate treasure <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's kind of wonderful like it's it's not good like we try to keep specimens in like acid-free boxes and, and to, to to keep them to a certain standard to avoid things like bind's disease which is where damp and acid collect in the shell and cause the calcite to recrystallize into other minerals. And it's terrible. If it happens to your shell, that's it. Game over. It just eats the shell from the inside out. So we try to avoid that. Um, but this one drawer itself should be curated as an exhibit of how people handled and packed and treated fossil shells in the past.
3: I think there's a, there's a really good paper that actually came out fairly recently in, uh, I think, the geological curator by Lindsay Harvey, who's another person at the, who's been working at the Natural History Museum. And it's all about where fossils have been found in in the collections and what packaging they've had. Uh, I didn't realize that, like, you can almost ID where a fossil has come from occasionally based on its tobacco, you know, on you know, on the tobacco tin or the color of cotton wool. That's in it because they'll all have been kind of these little clues left by curators as to where they've got stuff from it's there's yeah there's a real wide and varied history of people collecting fossils and storing them in in very unusual places <laughs> just whatever they could find to like get them back and safe to the museum um yeah it's yeah there's there's there's, there's a treasure trove of different weird uh, things to be held that that they're held in, also just a treasure trove of odd things in the collection. Yeah,
0: that's what I was going to say. So I, I've never worked in a museum. I have no experience of that. But I I recently visited a very large American North American um, institution. Uh, to have a look at some fossils. And they, they took me into some of the back rooms and they were like, oh, we have a table here for you and we've laid the fossils out. And I was like, oh, wonderful, thank you. And they gave me a little microscope and I sat down and I noticed a very large box next to me that had handwritten note on the top of it saying, do we require this box of termite poo? And I was like, I don't know, but I would love the answer. <laughs> oh,
2: I love that. That's so- <laughs> like, uh, speaking of institutional memory, another thing that I love a lot is handwriting analysis, because a lot of the time curators never, curators don't write down their name on every label that they write, right? Because that would be insane. It's like, this is my job for 50 years. I'm not signing every damn label that I write. But if you know who wrote the label, sometimes you can then go, so sometimes the collector will only be known by initials. And if you know who the curator was, And you'll have no other data on things like when it was collected or where it was collected. But if you know who the curator was and who they worked with, like who their collaborators were, you can narrow down the collector by the initials and then you can make a narrow down about where it came from or how, like that kind of thing. And people teach each other the handwritings of their predecessors. So I used to work it at um, GNS Science, which was once the Geological, uh, Geological Survey of New Zealand, and there were handwritings of older curators and other researchers that were sort of taught to me by the collections manager while I worked there, who'd be like, right, so that's Ian Keyes's writing, he used to be the curator here, and that's, you know, Jack Marwick's writing, he's a, a very famous malacologist of the time, and he would come into the collection, he would leave notes on things which have proved to, to continue to be useful for decades. But he never signed them, but you learn to go, oh, that's Jack Marwick's writing, or Henry Souter's writing. Or... And sometimes I'm at NHM and I open a drawer and, and there's Alan Bues writing. And Alan, who, who I worked with in New Zealand, came to visit NHM many years ago to work on the tonnoids. And so I'll pull open a drawer of tonnoid gastropods and there will be a bunch of little labels in Alan's writing going, nope, this is a sassier or, you know, re-IDing things. And it's just,
0: it's nice. <laughs> Friend of the show, Jim Jam, has asked a very, very good question, which is, as a museum curator, how do you deal with there being just so many bivalve fossils?
2: You have to break it down into bite-sized chunks. If I, like, I go into work and my office door is basically opposite the first row on the floor that's mollusks. Like, we don't have the whole floor, we have most of it, but we don't have all of it. And so my office door is off is opposite, like the lowest numbered row that starts the mollusks. And then we've got nine and a half thousand drawers. If I Whoa. went out of my office and thought, wow, nine and a half thousand drawers," I would just curl up into a ball under my desk and never come out again. So I usually I do it by, I'll go, okay. So someone sends me an inquiry. I want to look at, uh, I had one recently. I want to look at your litteranoids. Okay. Where are my litteranoids? Go and find those. I'm going to recurate that. That's five drawers. I can do five drawers, and that's five drawers out of the nine and a half thousand that are done. So yeah, just break it. any big task. Don't think about the big task. Just think about how granular can you make the big task, and how, how repetitive and sleek can you deal with it. Yeah, that's how, that's how. I don't think about the fact that it's so big. I just think, At no point can you tackle the whole of Bivalvia, you just tackle that family or that Mm. genus. Do you still get a lot of stuff
0: donated um, at the moment? Like, do you get a lot of collections being left to the NHM that that feature a lot of bivalves?
1: Um,
2: I mean, not during lockdown, we're officially not allowed. Well, yeah. um, We had some snails donated recently, despite me saying please don't. Um, no, that's not that's not true. Uh, my email signature says please don't send us anything. We can't get into the museum to get it and I guess people don't read email signatures. They're beautiful snails by the way. I was not sad. Um, <laughs> they are very lovely. I am very glad that they were sent to us and they're now in the collection. They're accessioned and it's, it's a type series so people can come and look at them when we're open again. Um, I would say not that many lately i mean i've only been here a couple of years so and one of those years has been very atypical um but we have to be careful because like storage is a premium so if someone wishes to donate something to us we we have to kind of assess it and take a look at it and figure out the logistics of of whether or not we need it and how we would store it and that kind of thing um but we do still people do donate things absolutely um but i guess i mean I would say probably not as much as they used to going on like my eyeballing of like the dates on labels, etc. Like I think the heyday of the hobby collector of fossil mollusks is probably a little past, um, at least partly because you know you used to be able to go to road cuts and now they just spray them with concrete, and so it's, it's it you come across them less, I guess. Then you might have would have. It's
1: actually quite sad, and I, I know. Paleontology is moving into a whole new era of computational stuff and all that, but there is a certain charm in its origins and where it came from as like a, a collector's sport almost, and how the collections are total relics of that. Like uh, being in the vertebrate collections for the NHM and the handwriting in itself is just enough to entertain you for hours. It's absolutely wonderful, but. I could see myself, if I was a curator, just being absorbed in it for too long and not getting anything else done. It,
2: it, Yeah. Um, you have to be a certain kind of obsessive, I think, to be good, but you can't be too obsessive. Sometimes curatorial obsession can be, a, it's a double-edged sword. Um, let's put it that way. Um, but I mean, you say, like, I mean, the digital paleontology era that we're in, that we've been in for a while now, it's it's great. But I think it's really important to note that all of the data that we use is pinned to specimens. And if it isn't, it's not really worth the paper it's printed on. I mean, this is so this is this is like a, a pet peeve of mine is people scraping databases and then not vetting the scraped database. So like, people input data in all kinds of stages to, or or databases are built literally from scraping data sets from other people's studies and they're not reconciled because people who build databases aren't taxonomically trained a lot of the time. And so you end up with false duplicates or you end up with just wrong IDs or, and it just, the data that you get off the internet can be so messy that it's really important that it's still tied to voucher specimens and that people be able to go to the collection and look at it or request access to a digital version of the specimen, request a photo, request an image of the label so they can check the metadata.
1: Yeah, uh, that is such a good point actually, that even the more we move on and the technological advances that we can adopt in paleontology, we never move from the fossil being the, the base unit of everything that we do. And it's so important to keep that going up the, up the chain. Whereas nowadays, the excitement is kind of taking over and we see that it's, you know, few mismatches here and there that spiral out of control. And I can see for invertebrates how that would be a huge problem because of the vastness of them. It,
2: it can be a real issue. I mean, so there's one quite fun thing is that we're still developing methods of getting more information out of the fossils. So, like, say, 20 years ago, it was a case of just, just count all the names. Boom, a diversity <laughs> analysis, you've just counted all the names. But now you, we can CT scan them. We can do SEM mapping for elements so we can see, like, strontium ratios across shells. We can grind them up. We can micro-sample them without destroying the whole specimen to get, you know, geochemical data. We've got... We can do shape analyses of 3D form now. We have all of this information. Um, so I think... It's kind of, as well as like ground truthing the data, they they continue to provide data and they continue to provide it in ways that we really can't even predict now. I don't think 20 years ago, we could have predicted some of the things that people now do with museum specimens, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, on yeah. the subject of, oh, sorry, go on.
1: No, I'm just totally agreeing with you. <laughs>
2: Um, I was going to say on the subject of like databases, there was a case a few years ago, and I'm not going to name the database because that would be cruel of me, but they had a fuzzy matching taxonomy system, and if you entered something it didn't recognize, it did its best to just shoehorn it into something close enough in terms of spelling. So a whole bunch of snails of the genus Harper got classified as Harpia, which I believe is an eagle. Oh, <laughs> flying death snails the, the
0: apex snail predator
2: i mean harper is a vo- it, like harper isn't a, a neogastropod it is an apex predator in its own way i mean it can't fly but
0: <laughs> not unless you throw it
2: <laughs> <laughs> sorry the dog wants to come back on the bed <laughs> Aww. is that her saying that
1: it's time for us to end <laughs> yeah i was gonna say it's, it's
0: almost like she knows that it's time time for us to uh to end this to be honest right okay I, as an invertebrate worker, was pretty hyped, pretty pumped. But I have learned so much. <laughs> and, like, like, I did not expect to, to laugh as much as I have to this evening. Um, but I think I think here's a good place to end it. So I think we're going to end there. Uh, it's our place just to remind everyone that we'll be back next week. You can listen to this episode anywhere where we, uh, you can download podcasts. Our website is up to date with our upcoming guests. Uh, so don't forget to follow us on Twitter um, as well because you can get notifications there. And the final thing is for me to thank our guest, Katie, for teaching us about benthic mollusks and my new favourite thing, the ham. And uh, just a little reminder to say, see you all hopefully next time, our well, next paleo party. So bye everyone. Thank you so bye much. Bye
1: everyone. Bye.